did you ever see American Bandstand with Dick Clark before preparing for this show? The show came out in 1957, which is the year we're profiling. Of course, Ken. I'm not a communist. Well, the show had a regular segment called Rate a Record, where Dick Clark would ask Bandstand studio members to rate a song on a scale from 35 to 98. And I'm going to play a handful of songs from 1957, and then you rate them, okay? Wait. 35 to 98? I'm not kidding. (laughs) Seriously, 35 to 98. Can we maybe, like, simplify and I just give it a pass-fail like I do with, you know, most of my students? Okay, that's fine. Okay. And then let me know your general thoughts after I play a snippet from each song. Okay. Okay? Here goes. My gal is red. Red Hot by Billy Lee Riley. Yeah! My gal is red. It's got a good beat. I think you can have sex to it. I say pass. Okay. School Day by Chuck Berry. American history and practical man. Definite pass. It's got a good beat, and you can do your homework to it. All right. And then lastly, Diana by Paul Anka. have a good beat and it's really special if your name happens to be Diana but I don't know the whole song it's a little wonky it's a little soft I, I'm gonna say fail okay hey everyone and welcome to another episode of Your View Mirror with Ken and Cliff we're a couple of high school history teachers who discuss debate and deprecate each other's thoughts and ideas about US history and popular culture in each episode we aim to create a big picture snapshot of one year in post-world war II America by using significant historical events to contextualize a handful of films TV shows and songs Cliff we've reached a milestone with this show this is show number 41 and that means we are exactly halfway through this podcast journey that we've been on for the last at least 16 months wow i'm still having the time of my life and i gotta say but you have made this one of the most rewarding experiences of of my 62 years wow this is Ken's some had the time of his, his life, life and, and he's <laughs> never felt this way before In this episode, we are profiling 1957, and we'll be discussing two classic black-and-white films, the jury room drama Twelve Angry Men and the film noir drama Sweet Smell of Success. And for television, we're discussing three TV debuts, American Bandstand, Leave it to Beaver, and Perry Mason. And for music, we'll be hearing two songs each from Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, the Everly Brothers, and Buddy Holly. Let's first get to the biggest stories of 1957. Perhaps the biggest story of 1957 was the launch of a basketball-sized satellite from the Soviet Union. Those damn commies, Cliff, beat America (laughs) in 1957 by launching Sputnik, history's first man-made satellite that orbited the Earth. And by doing so, it launched one of the Cold War's most important chapters the space race. The satellite did nothing more than emit in an innocent radio signal. However, it freaked America out and heightened fears of nuclear-tipped missiles flying across the planet, and it forced the U.S. to accelerate its own rocket program. Back in the United States, President Eisenhower was forced to send in army troops to Little Rock, Arkansas in order to enforce the desegregation of Little Rock High School. 
Three years previously, the Supreme Court handed down the Brown versus Board of Ed decision, which ruled that racial segregation in public schools was unconstitutional. Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus defiantly barred entry to nine black students, known as the Little Rock Nine. Despite relentless harassment and persecution from the local community, the Little Rock Nine were literally escorted from their homes into school and back home again by armed federal soldiers for the entire school year. I guess that's probably what it would take to get half these knuckleheads I teach into the classroom on a daily basis. Military escort. In a related civil rights story that year, Congress and President Eisenhower signed the Civil Rights Act of 1957, which provided federal protection for black voting rights. However, opponents of the act were able to remove or weaken several provisions via amendments and significantly watering down the act's immediate impact. During the debate over the law, Senator Strom Thurmond conducted the longest one-person filibuster in Senate history. 24 hours and 18 minutes. He continually spoke for 24 hours and 18 minutes in order to stall the final vote. And lastly, the so-called Beat Generation peaked in 1957 with the publication of On the Road, written by Jack Kerouac. The Beat Generation has been around since the early 1950s and was primarily a literary movement with such noted authors as Allen Ginsberg and William Burroughs. Members of the Beat Generation, known as Beatniks, developed a reputation as bohemian hedonists who celebrated nonconformity and spontaneous creativity. Elements of the Beat Generation would eventually evolve into the hippie and counterculture movements of the 1960s. The first film from 1957 we're going to discuss is considered not just one of the best courtroom dramas of all time, but many people, including you, I think, Ken, that is correct, consider it one of the best movies of all time. It's 12 Angry Men, and it's not really a courtroom drama, it's more of a jury room drama. The film was the directorial debut of Sidney Lumet, long considered to be one of the best film directors of all time. The script was adapted from a 1954 teleplay of the same name by Reginald Rose. Starring Henry Fonda, it's the story of a jury of 12 men as they deliberate the conviction or acquittal of a teenager charged with murder on the basis of reasonable doubt. From one man's doubt, disagreement and conflict among the remaining 11 jurors force them to question their morals and values. Let's listen to a clip from the film's original trailer. On the point of that night, a man's life is at stake. Hang on, I'm just saying it's possible. And I say it's not possible. How can I be positive about anything? I don't understand you people. I mean, all these picky little points you keep bringing up, they don't mean nothing. You are going to try a man for murder. The awesome power to kill will suddenly be thrust into your hands. Cliff, I've shown this film at least a dozen times through the years of my teaching high school civics. I'm always amazed that not only is this most likely the very first black and white movie that students have ever seen, but the majority of them were truly riveted to the story. And that's saying a lot because this movie is almost entirely set in one cramped jury room. However, my brother-in-law, who's worked as an attorney in the U.S. Justice Department for almost 32 years, cannot stand this movie. He's a legal purist, and he, along with a number of other legal experts, argued this movie took too many legal liberties in its depiction 
of the jury process. Specifically, the idea that a jury uses evidence not introduced into the actual trial and the fact they based some of their decisions on assumptions and not facts would have clearly resulted in a mistrial. But regardless of its legal errors, here's why this film is so great and why it inspired people like Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor to pursue a career in law. And we've referenced this point in previous shows. The law may be black and white, but people are shades of gray. And how that concept applies to this film is this. All 12 jurors are white men, and we're going to expand on that later. And those 12 jurors probably thought they had enough in common that they should have arrived at a quick verdict without much difficulty. However, as they deliberated, fault lines appeared by age, education level, national origin, socioeconomic level, the values and temperament. Prejudices and biases were exposed, which only clouded the black and white legalities. Hey, we need to keep in mind a couple of things as it relates to when this film was released. As we mentioned earlier when we were covering the top news stories, the 1954 Supreme Court ruling Brown versus Board of Ed was like a cultural and political bomb in the United States. And whether they liked it or not, Americans had a heightened awareness for discriminatory practices and civil rights. This film was really all about those issues. One of the most dominant stories of the early and mid-50s was McCarthyism. Joseph McCarthy, of course, was the junior senator who made fraudulent claims about federal government workers, college professors, and Hollywood types being communists. By 1957, McCarthy's name and reputation as a witch-hunter bully pushed him into shame, alcoholism, and early death, but the damage had been done. Twelve Angry Men can definitely be seen as a rebuttal to the lynch mob hysteria of McCarthyism. This film also stands as a testament to what the justice system looked like in 1957. White men were in charge and set the rules. Women, blacks, Hispanics, or any other undesirables were unwelcome. That was always the first comment I heard from students after showing this film. Cliff and I teach in Bridgeport, which is the largest inner-city school district in Connecticut, and our student population makes up about two-thirds Black and Hispanic combined. The most common comment I heard after showing this, how come it's just a bunch of white guys? <laughs> Cliff, how would you respond to that? I would respond by saying that it's just a bunch of white guys because it's 1957, and white guys were still considered by society as the only first-class citizens in this country at the time. The only people worthy to judge the guilt or innocence of someone on trial. This may not be the most legally accurate film, but it illustrates the complexities of our justice system and exposes the flaws of human thinking. And that story is timeless. I saw this next film for the first time for this podcast and didn't really think too much no, of it. Oh, that bums me out. I'm Cliff. sorry, Ken. I just gotta, I gotta call him as I see him. Yeah, I, I get it. So I can understand why this film bombed at the box office. It's a very grim and grimy story for 1957. Sweet Smell of Success is another great example of film noir. The genre of the late 40s and 50s, which typically dealt with the seedier aspects of life and with things often not ending well. But more importantly, the two male leads were Burt Lancaster and Tony Curtis. Lancaster was the Russell Crowe or Matt Damon of that era, 
mostly playing heroic action romantic roles. Tony Curtis had mostly been in lower grade films and in nice guy roles, and he allegedly begged for this role because he wanted to be taken more seriously as an actor. Both actors broke character big time and each played a scumbag trying to out-scumbag the other. In 1957, that was not a winning box office idea, and as a result, it was a box office bomb. However, in later years, the film would go on to be recognized as one of the most underrated and underappreciated films of all time, despite what I have to say about it. It's the story of a powerful and sleazy newspaper columnist, J.J. Hunsecker, portrayed by Lancaster, who uses his powerful connections to ruin his sister's relationship with a man he deems unworthy of her. Let's listen to a piece from the film's official trailer. Bert Lancaster as J.J. Hunsecker world-famed columnist whose gossip is gospel to 60 million readers. Tony Curtis as Sidney Falco, the kid who had ideas about taking over. But we happen to know I'm your star pupil because I reflect back to you your own talent. I'd hate to take a bite of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. This is their story and that of the big shots and big names who worship the sweet smell of success. Lancaster's character in the film, J.J. Hensecker, is based on the famous syndicated newspaper columnist and radio news commentator at that time, Walter Winchell. Winchell's role in New York society of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s was perfectly summed up by Winchell's acclaimed biographer, Michael Herr, quote, one of the most powerful and famous men of his time, unquote. It's hard to compare Winchell to any contemporary person because there really doesn't exist any one journalist, writer, or celebrity for that matter that carries so much influence in today's media landscape. The film went so far as to play out Winchell's real-life story in breaking up the relationship between his daughter, we're talking Winchell's daughter here, and the man she wanted to marry. In the film, it was Hunsucker who used his power to break up the relationship between his younger sister and her lover, a sibling relationship that bordered on the uncomfortably incestuous in this film. I mean, don't you think... Cliff, that that relationship between Burt Lancaster and his, the sister character in that film was just really weird? I don't think it bordered on the incestuous, nor do I really think it was weird. She's the only family he's got. She's his much younger sister, that's clear, and he is simply being overprotective of her. The LA Times has called Sweet Smell of Success, quote, the most obscure, influential movie ever made, unquote. Contemporary filmmakers like the Coen brothers, Spike Lee, Paul Thomas Anderson, and Martin Scorsese have acknowledged the influence of this film in their own careers. What bigger lessons or themes do you think can be taken from this film relative to the late 50s, Cliff? I think it shows the role the media had and continues to have over the lives of everyday individuals in this country, newspaper editors and columnists have been telling us what to think since the dawn of journalism. And in the 50s, with the rise of television, newsmen and talking heads joined the fray. You can draw a straight line from a columnist like Hunsicker and his influence over Americans to the tremendous power Fox News has over its viewers today. These days, too many people mistake opinions for news, and it's ruining this country because it's ruining our ability to think for ourselves. Hear, hear, Cliff. Thank you. 
Hey, we're covering three very influential TV debuts from 1957. The first is the music and dance show American Bandstand. The series actually premiered in 1952, however, it didn't really take off until a 27-year-old charismatic host named Dick Clark took over hosting duties in 1957. Within a year of Clark as host, daily viewership exceeded 8 million, making it ABC's top-rated program. Clark would remain the host until the show ended in 1989. And he would look exactly the same in, in 1989 as he did in 1957 even though he had aged 32 years and was approaching 60 it by then. It is remarkable how he was able to hold on to his looks. The show featured teenagers dancing to top 40 tunes introduced by Clark and at least one popular music act usually appeared in person to lip sync one of their latest hits. Here's a clip from one of the earliest shows that Clark hosted in 1957. Two nice things came in the mail today. One, a letter from a lady who is the teacher of Florence Larney, who lives in New York City. She wrote a composition, What I Do in My Spare Time. She watches American Bandstand. It's a very nice one. Teacher said, I think this is typical of an eighth grade girl, and I think it's original. Uncorrected form makes it more typical. The nicest thing that has happened in many a moon is something I'm very proud of, and I think maybe you will be too. Newsweek magazine called me last week, and they talked for a while. And they devoted practically a whole page to the story of American Bandstand, and they said some nice things about you, and said some very nice things about me, too. The show did feature black musical acts from the beginning, and there's no denying the show's influence on exposing young white teenagers to black performers at a time when race relations were a heightened issue. However, it was the absence of black teenage dancers on the show that was the problem. Through the years from the show's start in Philadelphia in 1953 until the show moved to Los Angeles in 1964, American Bandstand demonstrated a policy of restricted entry to black teenage audience members. Here's a quote from an anonymous American Bandstand staff member who said, quote, We are instructed to screen all applicants to the show by their last names. We select people whose last names sound Italian, Jewish, or foreign, less chance of picking Negroes that way. End quote. Once again, it's so important to frame all of this against the radical changes that were happening in race relations during this period. And we've noted this event a number of times on previous shows. But once again, the 1954 Brown versus Board of Ed Supreme Court ruling changed everything, ending the Jim Crow practices and policies that had been in place since the Civil War. Ten years later, in 1964, Congress would enact the most sweeping legislation for civil rights in the country's history. That ten-year period between Brown versus Board of Ed and that sweeping legislative change in 1964 coincides with American Bandstand's early days. Although it's easy to justify these discriminatory practices and policies as normal for the time, it still stings that it happened at all. This is the 1950s. Jim Crow still rules. Oh, yeah. Right? And so... After hundreds of years, you're not just going to sort of snap your fingers and Jim Crow segregation and discrimination disappear. We should absolutely credit American Bandstand for introducing such musical artists as Prince, Jackson 5, Sonny and Cher, Simon and Garfunkel, Aerosmith, and the Talking Heads, just to name a few who made their American TV debuts on the show. 
It inspired the creation of other music dance shows like Soul Train, uh, Hoot Nanny, and Shindig. And we certainly can't forget its undeniable influence on MTV. In fact, it was the popularity of MTV in the 1980s that directly led to the dissolution of American Bandstand in 1989. And it also led to Dick Clark becoming an American icon and earning him the nickname America's Oldest Living Teenager. Which is a better nickname than Dick. <laughs> Dick Clark's legacy in solidifying rock and roll as a youth movement and his ability to connect with the taste of the post-World War II baby boom generation is undeniable. Another TV debut which launched in 1957 that also had an enormous impact on American culture was the legal drama series Perry Mason. The title character portrayed by Raymond Burr is a Los Angeles criminal defense lawyer who originally appeared in detective fiction by writer Earl Stanley Gardner. The show was one of television's first weekly one-hour series and remains one of the longest-running and most successful legal-themed television series. Every legal TV show that came after Perry Mason, and there were a ton of them, including L.A. Law, The Practice, Law & Order, and all the spinoffs, have Perry Mason DNA in them. It was really the first legal show to make heroes of investigators and defense attorneys. It established a long-standing two-act structure, and it defined conventions like the unexpected confession in a dramatic cross-examination. Let's listen to a short clip used as a promo for the show's first season. Following that, we'll hear another short clip from one of the very first shows. Do you think it's safe to ask them? Barbara, you know Perry Mason would never ask a witness a question unless he knew the answer beforehand. All right, go ahead, Mr. Burr. Will you be with us for the next Perry Mason show? Right here. Unless, of course, you were scared because you just murdered Cullens. Hey, you're not going to paint me out of this. Let go of me. <laughs> Quit shoving. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. It was the old lady, the kid, one of them. That guy at the end of the clip was Leonard Nimoy, who, of course, played Spock in the original series of Star Trek. Perry Mason had an impressive list of famous faces appear in guest roles, including Robert Redford, Betty Davis, Angie Dickinson, and Burt Reynolds. If you've seen one episode of Perry Mason, you've basically seen them all. Each storyline depicted a legal system that worked only for the innocent and the wrongfully accused, a paradigm that fed broader misperceptions about the, quote, blind infability of the judicial system. Perry Mason never lost, or more accurately, he never failed. In the television world of Perry Mason, Justice was neatly served in 60-minute chunks. The show was set in Los Angeles, a city that saw serious racial conflicts over housing segregation and police brutality in the years Perry Mason aired. However, the real-life social and political tumult of L.A. never seemed to intervene in Perry Mason's world, which is almost exclusively white. Not once did Mason ever defend a black client. Yeah, and again, this is yet another example of the normality of 1957. I mean, just because Perry Mason may be defending the criminal element, the fact that the black people are never showcased on that show is just, it's normal for the times. Perry Mason has experienced a bunch of attempted reboots after the show ceased production in 1966. After a hiatus of nearly 20 years, Raymond Burr reprised his role as an L.A. defense attorney for 26 
of those episodes. And most recently, in 2020, HBO revitalized Perry Mason, but this time, he's a private investigator. That series starred Matthew Reese of the Americans TV series. The trope of the defense attorney as arbiter of moral justice may be the show's most enduring influence. In the original series, Perry Mason victories are always moral, never technical, never legal. The message is that the justice system works when the innocent are vindicated and the guilty are convicted. For me, this hour show, the fact it was an hour long, it was an hour too, too long yeah. of Perry Mason. Yeah. I, I could have done with a half hour show. Yeah. And I, I think also, as you said, every victory was a moral victory. Yeah. It wasn't just a legal victory. It, yeah. it got kind of like, yeah. I live in a world that is um, a lot greater than the Perry Mason yeah. uh, world that, you know, he yeah. was. As all of us do. Yeah. 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 The last TV debut from 1957 to discuss is. Leave it to Beaver. It's another one of those iconic family comedies like Father Knows Best, I Love Lucy, The Donna Reed Show. There was a glut of these type of shows in the 50s and early 60s. But Leave it to Beaver was one of the first ones to be written from the point of view of the children instead of the parents. And it's certainly the first to use Beaver (laughs) in the title. I mean, I can't believe that they gave this kid the nickname The Beaver. And that not only that, that they decided to name the entire show Leave It to Beaver. Well, it's been, you know, decades after the fact where Beaver has taken on different connotations. Oh, they knew what Beaver was back in the 50s. (laughs) You really think so? People have known what Beavers were since the dawn of time, Ken. (laughs) Leave It to Beaver starred Barbara Billingsley, Hugh Beaumont, Tony Dow, and Jerry Mathers as The Beaver. The show was not a ratings hit when it was first released, but it grew in popularity in repeats and syndication. Let's listen to a clever promo spot created by the folks at TV Land in the early 2000s. Why doesn't the Beaver ever learn his lesson? He has often taught his lesson. He promises to remember his lesson. But the next day, he's forgotten his lesson. Is he deliberately ignoring his lesson? Not exactly. New evidence suggests that Beaver's lesson enters one ear, floats around his head for a few seconds, but avoids having any contact with his brain before exiting out the other side of his skull. Oh, so that's it. Learn your lesson. Watch Leave it to Beaver. Cliff, I'm, I'm curious, why was there such a glut of these type of family shows in the 1950s, and what does it say about 50s America? Well, after the tumult of World War II, Americans longed for tranquility and order. And media and popular culture during the Cold War reinforced that domestic ideal, particularly in light of communism's disdain for the bourgeois family. Oh, interesting right. um, interpretation. And there. the TV domestic sitcoms attempted to shore up the old values, these traditional values. Yeah. Stressing the importance of family in forming character and virtue. To criticize Beaver for being idealized misses the point, for its purpose was not documentary, but instructional. I think the fact that this show was written from Beaver's point of view was what made this show special. Instead of wrapping this show around the perspective of cliche parental behavior, we saw the world through... We saw the world through Beaver's eyes. (laughs) Curious, mischievous, and gullible. (laughs) 
My favorite character on the show, though, was Eddie Haskell. Eddie was one of Beaver's best friends, but he was also the ultimate schemer, always pulling the Beave down a road of trouble. He was also a master of insincere flattery, especially aimed at June Cleaver. Eddie represented the antithesis of Cleaver family values, a menace to the social universe of the 1950s nuclear family. His schemes were invariably shown to be morally bankrupt, but the Beeve would always inevitably escape the consequences of Eddie's corrupting influence. Anytime any of my three boys brought a friend over that I had suspicions about, they immediately were labeled, between my wife and I, and Eddie Haskell. My, my dad did the same thing oh, really? with my more suspicious friends, and I now do the same thing with <laughs> my sons. The people that my dad would call an Eddie Haskell were some of my favorite people in the world. <laughs> because not, they're and, colorful people. We're excited about the songs and artists we picked to represent 1957. We picked four artists and then two songs from each artist that not only were commercially successful, but reflected the changing pop music scene at that time. All four artists were among the first inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986. Most historians, but not us, Ken, argue that 1954 was the birth year of rock and roll. That's when Elvis Presley hit the scene with this song, That's All Right, Mama. That's all right, Over the course of the three years since the release of that song, Elvis became an overnight pop sensation. Everything he touched turned to gold. And by the end of 1957, Elvis became not just a pop music idol, he became a burnin', burnin' Hollywood hunk of success. Big time. Elvis had a five number one hit songs in 1957. But this one, All Shook Up, was the number one selling song for the entire year. The song was written by Otis Blackwell, a black R&B singer who found more success as a songwriter than as a performer. He wrote several million selling songs for Elvis, Dee Clark, and Jerry Lee Lewis, who wrote Great Balls of Fire, which we'll be talking about in a bit. And here's a story that underscores the power Elvis had in 1957. Even though Blackwell wrote the song, Elvis ended up receiving co-writing credit due to Colonel Tom Parker's insistence. Parker was Elvis's all-controlling business manager. Even Elvis later acknowledged the deceit in an interview. He said, quote, I've never written a song in my life. It's all a big hoax. I got one-third of the credit for recording it. It makes me look smarter than I am. End quote. The other Elvis song from 1957 was this one, Jailhouse Rock. Walking through a party in the county jail, the prison band was there, they began. The song was written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, one of the most successful songwriting duos in all of popular music history. Together, they wrote or co-wrote over 70 chart-topping hits, including Presley's Hound Dog, Benny King's Stand By Me, and the Drifters' hit on Broadway. The song is best remembered as the title from Elvis Presley's third Hollywood film of the same name. The dance sequence to the film's title song is often cited as Presley's greatest moment on screen. And I agree. That same dance sequence set a new standard for pop acts and would ultimately carry over to MTV's more orchestrated dance videos. There was also a suggestion, dare I say, of gay romance in the song. What you talking about, Willis? 
Yeah, no, listen to this first clip. Well, number 47 said to number three, and we're, and we're assigning numbers to the, the prisoners here, you're the cutest jailbird I ever did see. Mm-hmm. I sure will be delighted with your company. Come on and do the jailhouse rock with me. Now, given the fact that rockin' and rollin' was a popular expression used by blacks in the 30s and 40s to describe having sex, and these male inmates consider each other cute, don't you think jailhouse rock connotes prison sex, Cliff? I never thought about it like that, Ken, but, you know, prisoners do need some loving, too, and... By the end of 1957, Elvis Presley was the king of rock and roll. His popularity was off the charts, which was a good thing because by early 1958, Elvis would drop out of sight for two years after he was drafted into the U.S. Army. The story of Buddy Holly is ripe with creativity, celebrity, and sadly, tragedy. He was born into a musical family in Lubbock, Texas during the Great Depression and learned to play guitar and sing alongside his siblings. His style was influenced by gospel music, country music, and rhythm and blues. He made his first appearance on local television in 1952 at the age of 15. By 1955, he was opening for Elvis Presley. That year, his band's style shifted from country and western to entirely rock and roll. 1957 was a big year for Buddy Holly. This song, That'll Be The Day, is based on a line from the 1956 western, The Searchers, in which John Wayne repetitively uses the phrase, that'll be the day. It's a pretty good John Wayne, wasn't it? That was okay. Okay, I hate John Wayne anyway, so I'm glad I can't do him. This was Holly's first hit, but it was credited to the Crickets, Holly's band. What distinguished Holly from many of the other early rock and rollers at that time was he wrote his own material. He also pioneered and popularized the now standard use of two guitars, a bass, and drums. Which is pretty much the default after 1957 from almost all rock bands. Guitars, bass, drums. Holly's influence is profound. Holly was among the first performers to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. This was the very first song John Lennon learned to play on the guitar. In fact, Buddy Holly was such a huge influence on all of the Beatles, they allegedly based their act around his persona and were inspired so much by Holly's insect-themed crickets band name, they named themselves the Beatles. Another British pop group, the Hollies, literally took Buddy Holly's name to name themselves. Allmusic.com, which, by the way, is an amazing website, which I use quite a bit for researching, defined Holly as the single most influential creative force in early rock and roll. This song, Peggy Sue, was the first hit credited to Holly without his backing band, The Crickets. Cliff, what is it about Holly's music that struck a chord with so many people around that time? I think it had to do with Buddy Holly himself. He was this polite, down-to-earth, bespectacle kid who looked like he would be really good with a slide rule. Yeah. Right? So he was not in any way of... He didn't come off as dangerous. Yeah. And, and, he, and he was not an Eddie Haskell-like character yeah. either. Right? I, and I think that made audiences 
both the children, right, who typically would right. pick up the rock and roll records, but also the parents made them feel safe right. with him. Good point. Right. Um, unlike his contemporaries, Elvis Presley and Jerry Lee Lewis, the music was pretty safe too. Right. Nothing that rocked too hard and nothing overtly sexual. Good point. Sadly, Holly died at the age of only 22 years old in a plane crash that also claimed the lives of the Big Bopper and Richie Valens. An event that was immortalized in Don McLean's 1971 song, American Pie. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. You must love as a man insane. You broke my wind, but what a thrill. Goodness, get wreckage and quitting balls of fire. The next artist has been dubbed The Killer and rock and roll's first great wild man. And when you hear his story, you'll understand why he deserves both titles. Jerry Lee Lewis made his first recordings in 1952 in New Orleans, but was conflicted early into his career between secular and sacred music. He grew up wanting to be a preacher. When he made it to Sun Studios in Memphis, Tennessee in 1956, the same studio, by the way, that Elvis recorded his first hit, That's All Right Mama, the studio owner, Sam Phillips, told Lewis to go away and come back when he learned to rock and roll. Lewis returned the following year and cut Great Balls of Fire in one take. Lewis later stated, quote, I knew it was a hit when I cut it. Sam Phillips thought it was going to be too risque. It couldn't make it. Well, if that's risque, well, I'm sorry, unquote. It ended up being his signature song, and at a time when electric guitar very much defined the rock and roll sound, Jerry Lee used the piano as his instrument of musical defiance and rebellion. The song reached number three on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on the magazine's R&B record charts. Lewis was an incendiary showman, often playing the piano with his fists, elbows, feet, and backside, sometimes climbing on top of the piano during gigs and even setting it on fire. Here's a quote from Elton John about watching Lewis perform early in his career. Quote, it was the first time I heard someone beat the shit out of a piano. When I saw little Richard perform, he played it standing up. But Jerry Lee Lewis actually jumped on the piano. This was astonishing to me that people could do that. We ain't faking it. Oh, Lewis's personal life, however, also had a whole lot of shaking going on. I'll say. Lewis was married seven times. His first marriage occurred when he was 16. That marriage lasted a year and a half before he married a second time. That one lasted four years until he married a third time to his 13-year-old cousin. That one lasted three years. And that marriage pretty much upended his performing career. Many radio stations refused to play his records and stores refused to sell them. In addition to marrying four more women over the course of his life, he also got into trouble with the IRS for unpaid taxes and, most famously, he got arrested outside Elvis Presley's Graceland home for allegedly intending to shoot Elvis. Oh, that really happened. Jerry Lee Lewis went to Graceland with a gun intending to shoot Elvis. He's the killer. He's literally the killer. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame said it best when they wrote about Lewis's induction into the Hall of Fame's inaugural class. Quote, audacious and arrogant, rollicking and rowdy, 
Jerry Lee Lewis took spontaneity to the brink of danger. He was an unrepentant, wild example for the naysayers to use when they spoke out against what even Lewis himself called the devil's music. End quote. The last 1957 artist we want to talk about is the Everly Brothers, and we've talked about them once before on Your View Mirror. Don and Phil Everly were raised in a musical family, first appearing on radio, singing along with their mom and dad as the Everly family in the 1940s. When the brothers were still in high school, they gained the attention of Chet Atkins, one of Nashville's most influential musicians and producers, who began to promote them for national attention. They began writing and recording their own music in 1956, and their first hit song came in 1957 with this one, Bye Bye Love. Bye bye love, bye bye happiness, hello loneliness. Of the four artists we've covered for 1957, I think it's the Everly Brothers that had the most country-western flavor, and this song personifies that perfectly. In fact, the Everly Brothers are credited with creating the subgenre known as country rock. The Everly Brothers were most known for their harmonies, kind of like the Beatles. Cliff, many shows back, you made fun of me for calling the Beatles a harmony act. Do you remember that? I remember that, yes. Yeah. However, in my research, I found an interesting fact which supports my contention the Beatles were also a harmony act. Paul McCartney claimed they called themselves the, quote, British Everly Brothers when they first started in the early 60s and went on to say, quote, when John and I first started to write songs, I was Phil and he was Don. Since making fun of you a while back, Ken, I went back and listened to every Beatles album from their last to their first. You were right. All right. They were most certainly a harmony act on their early records. The other big hit from the Everly Brothers in 1957 was this one, Wake Up Little Susie. Wake up, little Susie wake up. This song attracted some controversy because of the song's lyrics dealing with a young boyfriend and girlfriend who accidentally fell asleep after a date and who had to hurry home after their set curfews. Remember, this was 1957, and young boys and girls didn't have premarital sex, so it's no wonder their gooses were cooked and their reputations were shot. The Everly Brothers had 35 Billboard Top 100 singles. They hold the record for the most Top 100 singles by any duo. But what set the Everly Brothers apart from any other music act then and today was their exquisite harmonies. As Don Everly himself attested, quote, when Phil and I sing, there are times that what comes out is not me, either of us, but the voice of a third person. Beautiful, beautiful music the Everly Brothers yeah. put together. Hey, it's time to reveal our personal favorite entertainment release from 1957. I picked the film Paths of Glory, directed by one of my all-time favorite directors, Stanley Kubrick. Cliff, as you and our regular listeners know, I'm a big war movie buff, and this is absolutely one of the best. This film is set during World War One. Kirk Douglas is the commanding officer of French soldiers who refuse to continue a suicidal attack on the enemy. Three soldiers are singled out for cowardice, and Douglas's character defends them in their court-martial trial. I've seen this movie at least three times. It knocks me out 
every time I see it, and I can see it again tomorrow. Cliff, how about you? My pick is not exactly my favorite personal release of 1957. Well, that's not the idea of this. I, I know, but it would probably be one of the Buddy Holly songs oh, okay. or, or Bye Bye Love gotcha. by the Everly Brothers. But according to my Aunt Sis, who is a dozen years older than my dad, my father, at the age of five, used to rock his head back and forth and sing himself to sleep at night to Buddy Knox's song, Party Doll. So in an ode to him, I chose it as my personal pick. That it's a really sentimental thing there, Cliff. My dad has one sad story after another to tell about his childhood, like the time he got a ricochet gun, whatever that is, for Christmas, and his brother Neil took it apart, and my dad could never put it back together again, so he kept it in a drawer, and every once in a while opened it up and longingly looked at the gun and dreamed of what could have been. Or the time my grandmother bought him a pink flowered lunchbox because it was on sale and made him take it to school every day. But the party doll story seems like a happy one, so I'm glad there was at least one moment of my father's childhood that wasn't wrapped in tragedy. Keep on rocking, Pop! Oh, that's a nice shout-out to Dad there. That's awesome. Hey, well, that does it for this show. If anyone's interested to learn more about the stuff featured in the episode, the films, music, and TV discussed, please visit our website, kenandcliff.com. There you will find links to additional reading, Spotify song lists, letterbox film lists, and an opportunity to contact us about what you like and what you don't like about the show. Next week, we're covering 2014, and we will discuss the films Nightcrawler and American Sniper. And we'll discuss two TV debuts, Bojack Horseman and Silicon Valley. We'll also hear songs from Bruno Mars, Ed Sheeran, Walk the Moon, and Taylor Swift. Please share your view mirror with Ken and Cliff, with your friends and family, and definitely the beavers. <laughs> and all the beavers you know out there. <laughs> all the beavers you know. You can always find us on KenandCliff.com and drop us a message about what you like and don't like. Join us next time on Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff.